Hello everybody, welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Ken Nalbone, and joining me is my co-host, the Sultan of Storage, Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ken. And we are recording this week from Dell Technologies World in Las Vegas. You ready to get to some news, Stephen? Indeed, let's get to some tech news, maybe even some news from Dell Technologies World. That'd be awesome. All right, so um, Ken, this week uh, we've got some uh, earnings reports. Uh, me being in storage, I was really keen on the Western Digital uh, earnings, but uh, I think more of the people that are watching this show might be interested in uh, Amazon and Microsoft uh, and Google Cloud earnings. So all three major cloud providers reported earnings. Uh, Google maintained uh, their usual caginess, but Microsoft and Amazon gave us some details. Uh, AWS revenue grew uh, 41% in Q3 on the year to uh, 7.7 billion, which makes up 13% of all Amazon sales and half the company's operating income. Meanwhile, Microsoft's commercial cloud business grew 41% on the year with $9.6 billion in revenue. That's right, more than Amazon AWS. Right. Um, but uh, within that business unit, Azure, uh, sorry, Azure uh, grew 74%, but we don't know exactly what part of that 9.6 right. was Azure versus other uh, Microsoft Cloud. Um, analysts are estimating that Azure is growing faster now than when AWS had a similar estimated revenue. Does that mean much in terms of the cloud market, maturity, uh, rapid growth? What does it mean? I think it's significant. And first of all, you know, do we know what counts as cloud other than Azure within Microsoft that accounts for this 9.6 million? I, I sure don't. don't. Maybe you know, Office 365 and, and services of that nature. I, I'm kind of assuming there because it was the story was light on details. But um, when it comes to the growth of Azure, and even though you know they're, they're nowhere near as large as uh, Amazon. The fact that they're growing faster at this stage than Amazon was, and AWS specifically, I, I think is significant. Um, we've seen AWS make moves to court more than the development SaaS platform type of customers and the enterprise, which Microsoft has had all along. And now they're starting to reap the benefits of that as Azure is growing and being the attractive choice for a lot of the enterprises, which are finally starting to come into their own in the cloud. We're past the early adoption phase where everybody's like, okay, this is a real thing. So now we're going to do it too, and we might as well go to Azure. And I think that's why we can, how you can account for the more rapid growth for Azure at this stage of their cloud platform's existence. Would you agree with that? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, to, to sum that up, uh, essentially Microsoft has built a cloud that appeals to businesses, and it is an effective product, and it's a good product. Uh, people really like it, and people are moving to it. I mean, that's a good thing, right? Absolutely. Basically, they get their customers better than AWS ever did. Yeah. Right? But that being said, like you said, I mean, you and I were at uh, you know reInvent, and um, you know one of the things that we saw was the fact that uh, Amazon absolutely understands that they need to get this, and they are working hard to move in that direction. This is a fight. It's a battle. Absolutely. This is the cloud war. This is the new uh, tech war of this decade, or even you know this century so far. But of course there was that other guy in there, Google. Yes, and they are uh, trying to be a factor, I guess. You know, th they've had some announcements at their recent uh, .next conference that are interesting and something to keep an eye on, uh, but they're still the third place. Absolutely. Uh, distant third place player. All right, well, moving on, let's, let's talk uh, 5G. So 
You remember how Intel basically exited the 5G business recently. Well, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, CEO Bob Swan stated that the company made the decision to exit the 5G smartphone, biz smartphone modem business after the Apple and Qualcomm settlement of their long-standing patent dispute. And according to Swan, the company didn't see a path to make money after the agreement. And the further reporting by the Wall Street Journal claims Apple had been in talks with Intel since last summer about acquiring their smartphone modem and chip business, with the talks only stopping just before settling with Qualcomm. Apple has already hired a number of former Intel employees from the former 5G modem business. But it looks like Intel wanted out for a while, right? Well, I, I, you know, I'm really not so sure. I, I, you know, one thing, if you were cynical, you could say that Bob Swan was just trying to save face here. I don't buy that. Uh, I don't think that's who he is. Um, I think that um, I, I'm going to stick with my original assessment, which is, <clears throat> which is that, uh, you know, Intel's uh, development was falling behind. Apple could see it falling behind. Qualcomm could see it falling behind. I mean, everybody could see that this wasn't going to happen in time. And Apple, Apple needed to make a choice. And it sounds like maybe the choice, or the initial choice that Apple might have made was to push a little harder on Intel, um, maybe to think about taking the uh, modem business internally. But of course, if they did that, there's no way they would have been ready for 2020. So instead, I think the Apple bit the bullet, did what they had to do, signed the agreement with Qualcomm, and then Intel realized they had no customers. I mean, Apple was really Intel's 5G, 4G, you know, flagship customer and um, and you know without them it doesn't really make sense Wall Street has reacted extremely positively to the news of Intel exiting the 5g business um, it's really interesting you'd think maybe you know people might say you know um, stock uh, shareholders might say oh this is a bad sign you know Intel they're not able to do this but it, it's been the exact opposite um, the uh, Wall Street is uh, apparently saying good we're glad you're not gonna <laughs> pour money on that business so yeah, I do think that, the, that this is pretty much what we thought it was. Now the other angle here is that indeed at the end of the what you just reported, Apple has hired not just a bunch of people from the 5G modem business, but the leader of the Intel 5G modem business. And um, that is interesting because we know that Apple is trying to become more vertically integrated. I would be shocked if Apple doesn't try to develop their own 5G modem uh, internally. And um, I would also be shocked if we see that within five years. I think it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort. I don't know if they're going to buy Intel's uh, business or not. I wouldn't be surprised if they bought Intel's um, IP around mm -hmm. 5G yeah. patents and so on, just to give them that head start. Um, but I do think that Apple's going to be bringing this in-house and trying to develop an, their own integrated 5G modem, just not very soon. And you, you, you agreed, basically, that um Apple's going to be the biggest 5G customer and that you can't make money in 5G without well, having 5G Apple. mobile chipset customer. That's what I mean. But, yeah. you know, what about all the other phones in the world that are not Apple? They probably vastly, I don't know the numbers, but everything I've seen seems to report that they vastly outnumber Apple phones. But is that because they're in a lot of developing countries that aren't going to get 5G anytime soon? Or I think there's going to be a lot of other contenders for 5G. I mean, um, you know, we've got uh, basically, uh, you know, Qualcomm really does have the best parts, and um, you know Apple wants the best chips, and so Apple's going to be using the Qualcomm chips because they're the best ones on the market. If if um, you know Huawei allegedly went to Apple and offered them their 5G chips, and um, Apple apparently laughed that off because uh, they just don't want it. But uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Huawei shipping you know an order of magnitude more 5G chips than than Qualcomm. 
but I also would be surprised if Huawei was making any more dollars than Qualcomm on those shipments because Qualcomm has the patents and they really do have the best parts. Uh, so okay. that's that's how I see it. It's not that they're not going to have 5G. It's just uh, again and again, you know, you see Apple taking the the, the best, highest quality parts, the most expensive parts, okay. and dominating the revenue in the in the entire industry. So it's an issue of quality and margin, not about quantity. Absolutely. Okay, gotcha. Cool. What's next, Stephen? Well, next up, uh, we've got some news here. Uh, MongoDB announced a plan to acquire Realm. Now, if you're not familiar with that, they make a lightweight containerized object-based database for embedded and mobile applications. Uh, Realm was commercialized in 2017 and is a popular alternative to the SQLite, which is uh, quite a long-in-the-tooth uh, product. Um, MongoDB is well-known uh, as a back-end for mobile applications, but this is them getting into the on-device uh, market uh, for the mm -hmm. first time. So let's talk about that a little it's, bit. You know, this is not a very big story, but it is kind of interesting because now Mongo can have control of the data in an application end-to-end. -end. They already had the back-end. Now they have the, where the data is stored on your device within the application that developers are making. So does this mean they intend to create some kind of vertically integrated platform, maybe some kind of unified development platform for folks who are creating applications? I think that this is where it's headed, and I would expect to see that in the months and years to come, basically. Here you go, you can develop your application with our platform, there's no need to go elsewhere, and they probably commercialize it somehow, as so many open source companies do, and that basically will be their path to profitability now, I suppose, since they are struggling in some of the other cloud spaces against some service providers who have created their own database services that compete directly with Mongo. Maybe this is their way to have a com commercially viable project product. Sure. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I can take that. Okay. Not, not much else to say there, just kind of an interesting little footnote. But when it comes to application development, we do have a much bigger and more interesting story, Stephen. On April 25th, our friends at Docker became aware of unauthorized access to a Docker Hub database that held information on roughly 190,000 users. Some usernames and hash passwords were exposed, as well as tokens for GitHub and Bitbucket repositories. And this, these tokens, they have been revoked by Docker, but anyone who's deploying with AutoBuild may have had their code accessed and not even know it yet. So does this shine a light on a single point of vulnerability for container-built applications, or is it just kind of a bad situation for Docker specifically? Well, I think that at this point, any of us would say that um, you know data breaches happen and are going to happen, and um, you know I don't want to be uh, make light of it. Uh, it's a serious situation. Um, it affected me, by the way. Um, I was one of those people. Um, but that being said, I don't think that it is a particularly unusual or damning uh, indictment of any particular platform or anything. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to remember that this was uh, not a uh, vulnerability in Docker, really. It was a Docker hub. It was their, um, you know, their online service. Mm -hmm. um, it's also important to realize that Docker, not, number one, they handled this really well in terms of disclosure. They mm -hmm. sent me something. I mean, Marriott still hasn't sent me anything about the fact <laughs> that I was breached. I had to uh, wait a month to get confirmation from them after I asked them. I mean, Docker handled this so much better. I mean, they sent emails out um, immediately. Uh, they were ahead of this story. Um, but there is an angle here that I think is important to recognize, and that is this token angle. Now, um, increasingly, we're seeing single sign-on and, um, you know, and uh, web application tokens dominating the, uh, the space. Um, that's an interesting question, because mm -hmm. if we have um, you know, somebody accessing uh, tokens for other sites, these breaches can be much larger than we expect they're going to be. 
So right. for example, I mean, I, I'm a big uh, social media automation person. I use Zapper and IFTTT. If somebody got into my Zapier account, they would have access to basically um, every other account. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and that would be a serious breach for me. So that's one reason that I'm very, you know, uh, careful about, you know, not reusing passwords and using complex passwords and two-factor authentication and, and things like that on those accounts. But, you know, the same is true of everybody's Facebook account or Twitter or all these other accounts that are using tokenized access. And that has me concerned. Yeah, right. So this highlights maybe more of a vulnerability, vulnerability, not necessarily in any kind of application development methodology, but all about how we're connecting everything to everything. And once you gain access to one thing, it opens the floodgates for all kinds of other things. Yeah. That's, that's kind of scary. Yeah. And then there's also the other aspect of this, that this is source code access mm -hmm. and um, you know somebody can really uh, I'd say that uh, somebody in planning a vulnerability in somebody's source code or open source project mm -hmm. is a much greater security threat than um, somebody losing access to their own personal information if you're developing correctly though that means that you would see that as a commit that could you should be rolled back to technically you should yeah. yeah if you're an experienced developer you should be able to recognize that immediately now on the flip side of that we have another big breach here uh, to talk about um, uh, in the continuing series of bad configuration is the new security breach. Um, security researcher uh, Gnome Rotom discovered an unknown, uh, unsecured cloud server holding a 24 gigabyte database that included demographic information on more than 80 million U.S. households. The database is for adults 40 and older. Uh, I guess that's me. Um, <laughs> Almost. Including uh, street address, longitude and latitude, full names, age, dates of birth, coded fields for sex, income, marital status. Uh, social security numbers were not included. Uh, sounds like passwords weren't either. Uh, they, he said that there's no indication that this database had been accessed, but that it's still online and uh, posted on VPN Mentor asking readers to help find the database owners. He doesn't even know whose database yeah. it is. Are these kind of configuration blunders just a result of the cloud still being kind of new, or do we have to live with these uh, self-inflicted data exposures? I think what we're seeing with all these kinds of uh, exposures recently is decades of bad IT practices finally coming up uh, and biting us in the rear. Um, the consequences were not nearly as vast in the past when you had some kind of wide open misconfiguration on your internal IT systems. Yeah, it's in the data center. Who's yeah. gonna access you know, it? Maybe, maybe you know, you, it's, it's even doubly bad because you have um, a rogue employee who finds out how to get access to these things, but it's a lot less likely than opening it to the entire internet where anybody can access it and somebody's gonna find it just, just like this. Not only do we not know whose database this is, we don't know which cloud it's stored in. Was it Azure, was it AWS? They didn't even mention that, probably for the sake of you know, protecting whoever this database belongs to from further you know, leaks of information. But really, it's not necessarily a, a rise in incorrect configurations, as I said. It's more about the exposure uh, of these data sets that is much broader than it used to be. So, you know, everybody who's paying attention, you're going to have to assume that you will be breached at some point is kind of the mantra now. And you have to take proactive steps for how you're going to, you know, not only prevent it, but respond to it and recognize it so that you can nip it in the bud. So well, when speak. you say everybody, are you referring to the database owners or are you referring to consumers? Yes. See, I, 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 I take a, 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 I'll, I'm going to take a objection to that. Okay. Um, in this case, we've got, um, you know, there's another aspect here, and that's that we've got a database here with 80 million U.S. households. Mm -hmm. That's like half of the United States, okay? And, um, you know, you can't say, oh, hey, half of the United States, 
it's kind of your fault and you should take no i'm not blaming i'm not blaming anybody whose data was leaked but i'm telling i'm saying at this point you have to assume that somebody's going to make a mistake with your data uh, and you know as you said marriott still hasn't really responded uh, and there's nothing you could do to control that and unfortunately we as consumers are, are dealing with the fallout ourselves as well because of irresponsible it practices like this yeah, yeah it's more important for the companies that are holding this data to protect it but basically now we as consumers have the obligation i guess to watch out for our own pri data privacy since we can't count on anybody else really to do it it feels like but at least here in the u.s do about this i mean that's the thing so we, what do we got we've got i mean this sounds like an ad targeting database to me so mm -hmm. we've got um street address we've got latitude and longitude full name age dates of birth um these you know there is no protecting that. There's, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, not tell people your your date of birth or your age? I mean, of course you don't, like, go out and be, like, telling people your date of birth, but you tell Facebook. That's true. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm selective with every time I hand out any of that information these days. When I'm in a retail store and they're checking me out, they're like, what's your email address or your phone number? I'm like, I, I don't want to give you that. Yeah. Well, I, I, yes, that's great. But really, I mean, this, this information is out there. It's out there in bulk. And I don't think there's anything consumers can do to respond to the fact that this stuff is out there. I mean, maybe, um, well, I don't know what to suggest, but it's extremely frustrating that basically the answer is there's nothing we can do. Best of luck to you. <laughs> True. Uh, and I, I don't know what the answer is. And clearly it's not going to be trust people with our data. Um, I know what the answer is not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. We are here at Dell Technologies World, as we mentioned, and Dell subsidiary VMware announced this week that it was coming to Microsoft Azure, finally, three years after they announced a similar service integration with AWS. The big difference here, Stephen, is that the integration is being driven by Microsoft rather than VMware pushing for AWS integration. And Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella was here even, and he said that the partnership will bring all of VMware capabilities natively to Azure. In a press release, Dell said it said it expects app migration, data center expansion, disaster recovery, business continuity, and modern application development to be featured integrations. Some major VMware solutions aren't going to be included in the initial integration, however, say NSX and Azure networking integration only being explored at this point. So who is this a bigger deal for is the question, Microsoft or VMware? And is this a signal that Azure stack in some way wasn't moving the needle for uh, Microsoft and hybrid cloud? Well, I'm not sure um, yet um, the scope of this thing. Now, this has been a little confusing here at Dell Technologies World. Um, you know, num obviously, you know, having uh, Satya Nadella come out and having you know Pat Gelsinger be the one to greet him on the stage, along with uh, you know Michael Dell. Mm -hmm. I mean, that uh, was a big sign of commitment by Microsoft. Uh, what we're hearing is that uh, this is a Microsoft product, not a VMware product. Mm -hmm. um, Pat Gelsinger did say in the uh, analyst briefing afterwards that uh, they remain, that uh, if I can recall the correct words that he said, I think he said um, that AWS Cloud is still the preferred yes. cloud for VMware. Um, now, why is that preferred? Is it better? Is it because it's here now? Is it because it's a VMware product? I don't know, we'll see. Um, but clearly it seems that this is a uh, Microsoft-driven initiative. Mm -hmm. Given that, the fact that this is a Microsoft product, that Satya made the flight, that this is you know something that they seem apparently have delivered. And not only that, but um, you know VMware was already working to bring 
themselves to Azure, and this isn't that. So the right. fact that all these things kind of, it, it all points an arrow to this being a bigger deal for Microsoft than VMware, at least in Microsoft's eyes. And so I'm gonna say that this is uh, maybe not an admission by Microsoft that things weren't working out, but an embrace by Microsoft of the VMware ecosystem. Right, well, if you remember late last year, Microsoft announced a service exactly like this, and the only difference was VMware came out and said, we are not partnering with Microsoft, this is not a supported solution, and now it sounds like it's a very similar solution, maybe even the same one that just now has VMware's blessing. Um, at first I thought maybe this would be a bigger deal for VMware because now they are the platform in multiple clouds. They want to be the foundation for the enterprise customers regardless of which cloud you choose. But you know, then as we've discussed, the fact that this is an MS-led product uh, means that it's what Microsoft wanted. They're pushing for it because as we kind of mentioned, they are not, maybe, maybe they're not seeing uptick for their own hybrid cloud strategy that exists today and they really need those VMware customers to buy into them as their hybrid cloud. Because I think this is the year that we're seeing that become a reality, where the public clouds are finally acknowledging, yes, there is more than one cloud, but the other cloud is in your data center. You know, so regardless of who you choose as your public cloud, it sounds like there's still going to be that private cloud on-premises, and the acknowledgement that it's probably going to be VMware-driven, right? Yeah. And so Microsoft really wants to court those customers. It's another sign of Microsoft um, and under Satya Nadella um, accepting the reality of the world instead of living in their fantasy. You know what yeah, I mean? Yes, I do. Uh, basically, instead of deciding to crush every competitor that has a superior product, they say, how can we partner with them? How can we just bring that into our ecosystem and benefit from that large user base rather than trying to capture them by our own means? And I think this philosophy is working. Back to the first story, um, you know, about the earnings. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you know, Microsoft is way ahead of Google and literally every other company except Amazon AWS Cloud. Um, and they seem to be hot on their working. heels, right? You know, obviously they're still much smaller, but the rapid, rapid pace of growth seems to basically indicate that, yes, they're doing something right, and this seems to be one of those cases. Great. All right, cool. So that just about does it for the Gestalt IT Rundown, Stephen. Remember, if you missed any of this episode, full episodes are available on Gestalt IT. If audio is more your thing, you can also subscribe to our podcast feed in your podcatcher of choice. Remember to catch us live on Facebook every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. For more great content, be sure to check out gestaltit.com.